You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Israel has never been at peace since the moment of its founding in 1948. There have been many wars of all kinds, fights against terrorism continually on a daily basis for the 50-some years that I've been here. We are now in a second major war in those 50 years. The first one was back in 1973, when I was young enough to still be drafted into the war. And now I'm old, but I have a significant number of my grandchildren now under arms. So it's never any peace here in Israel. Now, I guess you have to ask yourself, I'm not a historian, you have to ask yourself, how did we get here? Hamas is a well-known enemy in the Gaza Strip, and the other terrorist group is Hezbollah in Lebanon. Gaza Strip is in the southwest of Israel. Lebanon is in the north. Hamas is a well-known enemy. Israel has been fighting for decades. During the Second Intifada, the group began to gain strength using rocket and mortar fire to terrorize civilian communities on the border of Gaza. Also, when the Jews were still living in Gaza, they were under bombardment. But then, the government disengaged from Gaza in 2005. Hamas moved in and began to stockpile rockets and weapons. Uh, They conducted a raid in June 2006 and captured uh, an Israeli soldier who was held for five years, and he was exchanged for some 1,000 convicted terrorists, many of whom went right back to terrorism. That itself was an interesting um, a turn of events. In my opinion, and in the opinion of many people, the Israeli government made a terrible mistake by uh, getting the release of an Israeli soldier for over 1,000 terrorists in exchange who went right back to their business of terrorism. That was a fiasco. Hamas understood at the time that taking Jewish hostages was the surest way to get concessions from Israel. So they bet about planning a mass kidnapping. And uh, it's interesting how it became politically incorrect to speak of revenge as a moral reaction. However, it's been pointed out, a friend of mine, Rabbi Stuart Weiss, that there's nothing wrong with revenge. Judaism absolutely holds the virtue of revenge, 
In Psalm 94, recited every Wednesday in our morning prayers, revenge is placed between two names of God, giving it divine validation. And the Torah records numerous wars of revenge that were carried out against the despicable adversaries, adversaries in the Bible. Now, the right now we have to punish the terrorists of Gaza and their equally evil countrymen by delivering a really strong blow so that they will not soon recover. Unfortunately, but that's the way it is in war, it means widespread destruction to cities and in the society. And if people think there's something right, not right about doing something like that, go back to the firebombing of Dresden uh, in Germany during the Second World War and the nuclear bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki that crippled both Germany and Japan and brought the war to an end. So the, uh, the, it, it's a very bad situation. History will record whether this day marks surrender to terror or a determination to expunge terror from our midst once and for all. In uh, after 2006, Hamas continued to fire rockets at southern Israel. They expanded the range of their rockets. They strike cities like Ashkelon. And uh, Israel was forced, because it is, to make what they call Operation Cast Lead, which was a ground incursion into Gaza. They had some other smaller operations. So what happened was that Hamas benefited from what was called the Arab Spring and the chaos that unfolded in Libya and in Sinai. And they imported more weapons and stockpiled an arsenal of rockets. The, uh, as in 2012, 10 years ago, Hamas felt confident enough to launch rockets in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. So uh, there, was, there, was another, there was not another ground incursion by Israel, uh, but because uh, Hamas was also shifting resources, they were building tunnels for smuggling, the, uh, but also as a way to break the border between the Gaza Strip and Israel communities. There was another round of fighting in 2014. Now, it was estimated that back in 2014, Hamas had an arsenal of maybe 10,000 rockets. But um, the key to Israel's defenses was something called Iron Dome. But it turns out every time there was a round of warfare, Hamas fired more rockets uh, than before, and this time around, last Saturday, just a few days ago, they fired more rockets in just a few hours than they did in many of the early multi-day conflicts. 
The 2014 war marked a kind of turning point because the tunnel threat, tunnels being uh, dug by the uh, terrorists into Israel, became more significant. Um, after 2014, there was a shift in Israeli strategy as well. Israel no longer made any ground incursions into Gaza, and Israel used its air force more and more con to conduct strikes in Gaza, and these strikes are precision strikes. The idea is to destroy the Hamas leadership. Gaza is the most densely populated place in the entire world. So uh, there, are, there are battles back and forth for years. The question always has been, how best to handle Gaza? Israel made a terrible mistake 30 years ago. It brought the terrorists back from North Africa and planted them in Gaza, and we have been living with the results of that since then. For example, uh, uh, Victor Lieberman, who is, uh, leads a party in the Knesset, was a defense minister. He, he, he resigned because he opposed a ceasefire when the when the Arabs were firing. Over the years, Gaza took on secondary importance to other issues. A new, smarter security fence was built, and Israel attempted to prevent tensions in Gaza from becoming conflicts. Thousands of Arab workers come into Israel from Gaza every day because they have no other way of supporting their family. The Palestinian Authority does not provide workplaces for them. They come into Israel from uh, Gaza and from the West Bank in order to make a living, living for their families. The, so what's the, what, one of the things that Hamas started doing is a wave of riots and protests along the fence. They called it the Great March of Return, showing they could easily heat up the border whenever they wanted to. And there was a bunch of short-term operations uh, to, to fight against this, and they hardly even get any headlines. So, uh, Gaza was pretty much left uh, considered relatively unimportant in terms of security threats because Iran-backed proxies have been increasing threats elsewhere. For instance, after 2018, when the Syrian regime returned to the Golan Heights and defeated the Syrian rebels there, Iran-backed proxies have been active close to our own Golan Heights. In Iran, which is the major problem in the world today, has also been working with Iran-backed Hezbollah, which has increased its arsenal of weapons and power in Lebanon to the north of Israel. Iranian-backed militias in Iraq have also increased their threats, 
and Iran uses them to support a network of pro-Iranian outposts across Syria and Iraq. So the big threat is Iran and its proxies. For example, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, Jihad which is a proxy for Iran, and uh, Israel uh, launched a short operation against them in July in the city of Jenin. However, the uh, Hamas, which is controls Gaza, appeared isolated, unable to even get more funds from its patrons, such like Qatar. Now, the problem that the Arabs see, that is, Israel is normalizing agreements uh, with other countries, and the terrorists want to stop this. So uh, we have been lulled, I believe, into a false sense of security. The uh, much of, the, of that sense of security has now been shattered. The massive attacks on Israel and the invasion of Israel on Saturday led to a tremendous amount of chaos at the border and a, law, a real serious security problem. Right now, it's obvious, unclear what comes next. 300,000 uh, men have been called up, who, uh, that is, not the, beside the regular army. These are reserve people, they called up, it's interesting, in a sense, the only good thing that has come out of this is the fact that all the internal squabbling that's been going on in Israel about the change in the, some of the government laws, that's all been put aside. People who demonstrated against the government during the last eight months had no problem problem leaving their places of work and showing up for reserve duty. Struggling against our own government here in Israel, strikes and rallies against the government is one thing, but the protection of the country is another thing. And people put aside all these domestic squabbles when the country itself is in danger. So, the chaos in the country has stopped because of the chaos at the border. Nobody knows what's going to come next. The, uh, will this be a shock like back happened, happened in 1973? It'll change the government's policy in general. Uh, will it, what happened now reshape thinking about the challenge that Hamas possesses in Gaza? Despite numerous rounds of conflict, Hamas continues to pose a major threat through rockets and now has shown that it coordinates deadly attacks on the ground, which is what they did last Saturday. A deadly attack on the ground well coordinated by Hamas. Hamas has shown in the past that it can kidnap and hold hostages. As a matter of fact, it continues to hold two Israelis for many years already, 
It also holds the bodies of two Israeli soldiers who were killed in 2014. Now, that the fate of dozens of Israeli hostages captured and taken to Gaza remains unknown at this moment. Now, I, the taking hostages was an integral objective of their attack. So what's happened is that Hamas has enjoyed the privilege of running Gaza and threatening attacks at times of its own choosing. They chose the time of attacks. That is a privilege that Hamas has had. It's quite unclear now whether that privilege will now come to an end. The, the time has come for our government to take the initiative and stop this, what's been going on. As I said at the outset, I've been living here for a little more than 50 years. There has never been a quiet moment in those 50 years. But Israeli government has maintained our security and kept the problem to a minimum. Because we are well guarded, we have a good army. But what happened last Saturday is an indication the policy that's been worked since the founding of the state simply doesn't work anymore. We cannot allow a terror entity right on our border to get stronger and stronger and it strikes us when it feels that it's ready to. The, ki the kidnapping and killings of innocent civilians is, is, makes us all aware how grave the situation was. The, uh, so we don't know what's going to happen. Nobody knows what's going to happen next. But undoubtedly, the time has come for a unity government here in Israel because with all the domestic problems, they are nothing in comparison to the existential problem we have by the attacks from our neighbors. <clears throat> that has to be ended. And then we can go back to domestic infighting. The, the problem is when the borders are quiet, the domestic infighting grows because we tend to forget that our real enemy is not an opposition party in the Knesset. Our real enemy is an, is an outside our borders that wants to destroy us. We have to keep that in mind. Unfortunately, it takes what's happening now to wake us up to the fact that our internal problems are secondary. The real problem is the survival and existence of the state of, against, of, of Israel it's then go against those who call for our destruction. They exist out there, and we have to keep that in mind all the time. That is our real problem, not domestic politics. So every now and then we have a wake-up call. Right now we're in the midst of a wake-up call. Let's hope we indeed wake up. I'll be back after the break.
you think you can get real news about Israel from major news sources located far away from Israel? Think again. Get it from the source. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. Needless to say, the events last Saturday changed everything here in Israel. And uh, it's interesting, by the way, that before uh, before the events of Saturday, I read a report concerning the Israeli Air Force. <clears throat> it turns out <clears throat> the information is still valid, and I want to share it with the listeners. There are new documents that have been released by the by the army to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. And what they do, these documents, is show the systematic approach of the Israeli Air Force to improving and learning lessons from the conflict. Incidentally, as of my uh, making this broadcast, the Israeli army is... uh, on the outskirts of Gaza, has not invaded yet. All the action in Gaza, all the offensive action by Israel is being done by the Air Force. And it turns out that the main lessons developed from the Yom Kippur War regarding the building uh, and the operation of the Air Force today are relevant and they remain relevant. Back in 1982, a a section of the Air Force called the Planning Directorate, they wrote a summary, and at the time, the IDF was learning new lessons from the first Lebanon War. We're talking in uh, 1982. And it was a suitable time to review the impact of the Yom Kippur War on the Israeli Air Force. Now, while the Israeli Air Force had addressed almost all the failures in the Yom Kippur War, in a few cases these were not applied due to limited resources and having to prioritize more vital issues. For example, one of the things they now have, which they didn't have at the time, is a transport wing. For example, the um, number of transport aircraft in Israel, it's no longer a secret, it's 55 transport planes. Between 1973 and 1982, they phased out the uh, the uh, Boeing 707s, and uh, and they purchased Bo- uh, uh, Lockheed C-130s, which were still in use by the Israeli Air Force. And among the most devastating weapons encountered during that war were surface-to-air missiles. They're called SAMs, surface-to-air missiles that diminished the Israeli Air Force capability to support the troops on the front line. The Egyptians, in particular, 
have been supplied by surface-to-air missiles by the Russians. Now, its perception changed regarding how to deal with surface-to-air missiles at all levels, including training pilots and avoidance and counterattack uh, to, uh, to avoid attack. They, they now have what they call chaff pods placed on every fighter aircraft and SAM warning systems were installed in every aircraft. So, in other words, they did learn the lessons of the war. For attack, the military purchased uh, the uh, pure standoff cable weapons, which allow weapon launchers outside the range of ground defenses. Additionally, Israel invested more anti-radiation missiles that could lock on to the SAM radar systems. In other words, the major thing that the Israeli Air Force did was learn from its failures and learn from its defects. Now, realizing that it needed to improve its own air defenses, uh, in particular with successful what they call medium-caliber anti-air cannons, Israel purchased what's called M163 Vulcan Air Defense Systems with greater accuracy, greater rate of fire, destructive power, and greater effectivity. And they, they also bought more Raytheon Hawk batteries in the post-war years and a denser detection system was developed with the purchase of these new, new radars. Sinai detection posts had to be moved when Israeli pulled out of the Sinai Peninsula following the peace treater, treaty with Egypt. Now, I know the much of what I'm saying might be sort of boring to the listeners, but the point I want to make is that Israeli Air Force is a rager part of our defense. The Israeli force consisted only of a few Piper Cubs back in 1948, and now it is a major arm of Israeli defense. It's interesting to note that um, additional air bases were built between 1973 and 1982, so that the number of Israel's airfields for combat aircraft are now four to, to seven. They went from four to seven. Several emergency landing fields were established, and a remote airbase was built to replace Northern Sinai's airbase. So uh, the aircraft came to be stationed. All these bases are the mainstays of the Israel aircraft. Now, among the failings of the Yom Kippur War where nighttime combat and the American-made warplanes were equipped with advanced radar and missile systems that allowed for air-to-air combat at night. So, Israel also addressed the need for more reliable and secure communications between planes and command. And uh, they, they updated just about everything. It's absolutely fantastic. The uh, the, the Israel Air Force has improved the ability to strike strategic targets, 
and they have air refueling planes, and even the older F-4 Phantoms, which I remember when I first came on Aliyah, were also given the capability for air refueling. So the, the, the Israel has done a tremendous amount to improve the capability of its air force. So the uh, I, I don't want to go into details, much of which, of course, is secret. I don't even know myself. The, uh, they, they, they also change the way the departments are structured, are structured because of equipment, intel, air, air supplies, and safety and quality control. All these things are added so that the Israeli aircraft, the Israeli Air Force went from a few Piper Cubs, 1948, to one of the most advanced systems in the world. It's interesting, by the way, they lost 100 aircraft in the 1973 war. And uh, so that, that was really bad. So that, that the events of that war served as a warning sign to teach that a question, even what we they, they know already, we get, we, Israel knows how to get back on its feet in the face of the events of the Yom Kippur War. So obviously Israel also know how to get back on its feet to continue to defend Israel, even though we were attacked this time again. So the, the Israeli Air Force and the Israeli Army has learned a lot of things from the, from particularly from the Yom Kippur War, obviously there's going to be some questions after this war is over because we were really, I think, surprised on Saturday morning. But hopefully we will learn from it. The problem always is the cost of learning in human lives. That's the basic problem. Anyhow, I just want to give a kick quick review of the Israeli Air Force as I understand it. And now I want to go into a different subject, a very different subject. Uh, let me start by saying the following. Back in 2015, it's eight years ago, France witnessed one of the most hard, really bad terrorist attack on its own soil in France. Twelve people were mercilessly killed in what's called the Charlie Hebdo shooting. It was a restaurant in Paris. And France, along with the whole world, was, was in shock. Across continents, world leaders and media personalities, they all said, yes, we Charlie, which means I'm Charlie. It's a declaration of solidarity and support for freedom of expression. There was an iconic march on January 11th of that year where world leaders locked arms in Paris, emphasizing the universal importance of freedom and resilience against terror. That was back then in 2015. Now, it's eight years later, the world is faced with another terrorist offensive on Israeli soil. 
The death toll today is almost a thousand, and the, obviously these recent events this week in Israel far are far greater than the the attack in in a restaurant in Paris eight years ago. However, there has been a noticeable absence of world leaders marching through the streets of Tel Aviv with their arms locked or proclaiming that I support Israel. So the question we have to ask ourselves, why is there this difference in international reaction? Now, the numbers alone should be a, a call for leaders around the world to rally behind Israel. And there's an undercurrent of political intricacies and geopolitical considerations. It's undeniable that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has complexities that are rooted in history and geopolitics and all kind of long-standing grievances. However, one cannot help but wonder, should these complexities be a reason for world leaders to shy away from openly supporting Israel now? Now, what happened in Paris eight years ago was an assault on freedom of speech. But the assault on Israeli civilians now is an assault on the very essence of life a value even more fundamental fundamental than freedom of speech. The attack in France eight years ago, seven years ago, was an attack on freedom of speech. The attack on Israel this week was an attack on life. So there should be a rallying cry underscoring the sanctity of human life. We should remind the world that every life lost in Israel is not just a statistic, but it represents a story, a family, and a dream cut short. This doesn't even take into account the men, women, and children who have been kidnapped right now by terrorists and taken to Gaza, where they are held as prisoners. So what other Western democracy would tolerate such a degrading situation? So I think that the absence of a visible, physical presence of world leaders in Israel, supporting Israel, in the wake of this atrocious action, really raises questions. Is the world genuinely united against terror, or is there a selective empathy? Are geopolitical considerations more important than innocent lives? The response, by the way, from the United States, from Congress, except for a very small group in the House of Representatives, the response in the American Congress has been tremendously supportive. Now, there's no doubt that seven years ago, the world stood by France in a very dark hour, hour, and rightfully so. I think it's high time 
the world leaders, regardless of their political affiliations or their strategic interests, start unequivocally and say that they stand with Israel, not just through words, but through meaningful, visible action. The, the, we, we deserve nothing less. The very fact that in particular in Europe, there is an outcry against what happened here this week says something about the European attitude toward Israel, which I think 80-some years after the Holocaust, one would have expected that the Europeans learned something and that there would be more sympathy, but apparently not true. The greatest outpouring of sympathy from the political arm of any country is from the United States. Incidentally, concerning this topic, uh, there were demonstrators, demonstrations took place in New York. The, uh, it's interesting. Um, Israel is now in a war, and, and Times Square, the, in Times Square, New York, hundreds staged a gathering to condemn Israel for defending itself. They went around shouting, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. New York City will see, Palestine will be free. Now, that was a, a rally in favor of the Palestinians in uh, Times Square, New York, and uh, and there was a rally in New York supportive of Israel. So the uh, the hundreds rallied in support of Israel outside the United Nations on Sunday afternoon. So obviously the rallies reflected the emotion felt by New Yorkers. And uh, it's interesting. The, the the ones who supported uh, the, the support of the Palestinians was the group was organized by all kind of uh, organizations, mostly left wing, including the Party of Socialism Liberation, and uh, the anti-Israel rally. Of course, drew condemnations from elected officials, including the governor of New York. Uh, but um, the uh, it's interesting that the the uh, what happens in Israel is reflected all around the world. And the very fact that a mob came out to support the Palestinians in in uh, New York shows that uh, I think that there is a lot of education that has to be done the Ameri- among the American community because there was just an awful lot of people in the United States who simply don't know what's going on in the rest of the world. And they're influenced by daily news uh, current events without having any real background of the history of this part of the world, or any part of the world for that matter. So 
The pro-Israel and the pro-Palestinian marchers faced off in New York, and I, I, to a certain sense, I think it reflects a, lot of, a lack of education on the part of the pro-Palestinians of what is really going on here in the Middle East. I'll be back after the break. Shalom, this is Nadia Matar from the Sovereignty Movement. At a time when there is so much disinformation, you have to know who to listen to to know what really is going on in Israel. Israel News Talk Radio is a radio where you can know that what you hear is the truth. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to start this segment of my program by reading a news article, it's, it's, the headline is Starbucks Union Championed by Bernie Sanders and AOC Celebrates the Hamas Attack. A labor union championed by Senator Bernie Sanders, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and other liberals expressed solidarity with Hamas terrorists after the worst domestic terrorist attack in Israel's history. Starbucks Workers United, an affiliate of the Service Employees International Union, expressed solidarity with Palestine in deleted, deleted social media posts Union chapters in Iowa, Chicago, and Boston promoted rallies in support of the Palestinian attacks, including a long-lived Palestinian resistance rally to be held in Boston on Monday. Hamas slaughtered hundreds of Jews in an invasion into southern Israel over the weekend, more than 700 Israeli civilians have been killed. The Starbucks Union, which represents 8,000 baristas, joins other American liberal groups in siding with the Palestinians over their Israeli targets. The Democratic Socialists of America, which counts six House Democrats as members, held rallies in several American cities to call for support for Palestinians. A Harvard University dean, dozens of student groups at the Ivy League School blamed Israel for provoking the Hamas attack. Starbucks Workers United has lent support in the past from Ocasio-Cortez Sanders and Senator John Fetterman of Pennsylvania. Ocasio-Cortez cheered the union after it voted in 2021 to organize the first store in Buffalo. Sanders called the union a tremendous inspiration after it formed that year. Fetterman said in July he would continue to stand with the union. The union's rhetoric is perhaps no surprise. The, the organizers of the union have praised Palestinian terrorists as freedom fighters and as, as said, from the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free. 
which they chant widely seen as a call for genocide against Israel. The, uh, the uh, anti-Israel activists and lawmakers such as Representative Rashida Tlaib, a Democrat of Michigan, frequently accused Israel of apartheid. Indian, individual union members also took to Twitter to endorse Hamas's attacks. The, the, they, they endorsed terrorism, and this is the, a union in the United States, and it's really it's terrible. The the you can't the, you can't these uh, these workers unions cannot turn a blind eye when the union defends violent terrorist attacks. The, uh, the they have to condemn what's going on. The uh, the union deleted its posts expressing support for Gaza resistance fighters. But the bottom line is there, that these unions in the United States are supporting terrorism. That's absolutely disgraceful. And these members of the U.S. Congress, including a Jewish senator, should be ashamed of themselves for supporting terrorism. What happened this week since Saturday morning is a game changer, a historic game changer. The horrific actions since Saturday morning uh, have to completely change the way we look at the Palestinian Authority and the way we deal with it. Anyone observing the trends over the past years could have seen that Israel's deterrence was weakening on all fronts, both vis-a-vis Hamas, Palestinian terror, as well as Hezbollah in the north and Iran. Hamas has attacked before but this time the strategy that has guided Israel in its response to the terror organization since it took over Gaza in 2006, our response has broken down. In response to previous rounds of Hamas rocket attacks, Israel's goal has been to restore a reasonable level of deterrence against such attacks by exacting a moderate price, only a moderate price from Hamas. It did this by destroying parts of the rocket production by Hamas, some of its infrastructure, and some of the buildings that house parts of Hamas's political and military establishment in the Gaza Strip. And the success of this strategy was measured in terms of the amount of time without another period or extended rocket fire. And it turns out that the average time between these attacks was two to four years. And it seemed that Israel was content to keep Hamas in power since it assumed that the alternatives were, were worse. 
The thinking went that if Israel toppled the Hamas uh, leadership, what would appear in its stead? Either the Islamic Jihad or ISIS. So what they felt was, our leadership felt, it's best to deter Hamas and focusing our attention on bigger threats like Hezbollah and Iran. Now, however, this weekend's attack has demonstrated that this strategy has broken down and obviously an alternative strategy must replace it. Hamas has proven that in truth it is no different ISIS. All the terrorist organizations are the same. The, the, uh, the question is, what part of the Palestinian population is controlled by these terrorist uh, groups. This past weekend has demonstrated that Israel cannot allow a brutal terrorist state to continue to exist alongside our borders, and no state should be expected to accept the existence of such an entity. The continued existence of Hamas has evolved from a tactical threat of sporadic rocket fire into a strategic threat whose continuation cannot be tolerated. As of this uh, program, more than a thousand Israelis have been killed by terrorists since last Saturday morning. The only acceptable result of this situation, which is a war situation, is the total destruction of Hamas and the toppling of its regimes. This must be Israel's goal, and this must be the goal of any moral nation around the world. Everybody should support and encourage Israel to in our efforts to destroy Hamas. If the war ends with the Hamas Islamic State still in existence, it will have grave implications and will certainly lead to a broader war in the Middle East. Hezbollah and Iran are watching Israel's steps now and if the results are anything less, less than decisive victory, then the conclusions will be clear, and, and they can expand the war against this, us, us. Alternatively, if Israel adopts a new strategy and pursues unconditional destruction and the end of Hamas, it will have significant positive implications for the entire region, the most significant of which would be to encourage the negotiations that Israel is now having with Saudi Arabia and the establishment of a strong Western-oriented Israel and Gulf Arab alliance against Iran. That should be the conclusion of what's happening now. <clears throat> what's happening now indicates 
that Saudi Arabia is interested in strengthening relations with Israel for one simple reason. Israel is a strong country willing to act forcefully against common enemies. It is precisely against the progress of the negotiations with Saudi Arabia that Iran is looking to undermine them by encouraging the war that's taking place right now because they hope that Israel will come out looking weak. So it could be that what happened now is the is that was a trigger for Hamas's actions because they don't want Israel to negotiate with Saudi Arabia. You got to remember, by the way, that Saudi Arabia is a Sunni Islamic country, and um, the uh, the the people in uh, in uh, Persia in Iran are a different kind of uh, 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 Islamists. They are Shia. And the Shia and the Sunni don't get along with each other too well. Even more broadly, a decisive Israeli victory would be perceived by Russia and China as a sign that the West as a whole remain strong and not to be provoked. So Israel cannot be weak in the response now. Israel is perceived as the front line of the West. It's clear to China that Israel is supported and uh, aligned with the United States. If Israel is weak, it will be perceived as a weakness of the United States and the West, and if Israel succeeds, it will project to this region and to the rest of the world that the United States and its allies around the world remain strong. In a very large sense, Israel's battle with the terrorists here in our homeland is a battle of Western society against Islam. About a thousand Israelis have been murdered, and more than 2,000 wounded. There are at least 100 Israelis being held hostage in Gaza as a result of the surprise terror attack. Per capita, that's about 10 times more murdered citizens than the United States suffered in 9-11. Israel must not be tempted to manage a negotiation for the capture's release, but rather must adopt an unwavering policy non-negotiation with terrorists. This is a very, very difficult and a historic situation. Hopefully, Israel will be able to extract the hostages alive. But if it sacrifices the goal of decisive victory for their safe release, it will clearly result in insensitizing such incursions. It will therefore be immoral. This, our government now is, must make 
extremely important historic decisions. Will adopting a policy of unconditional surrender and ending the regime bring Hezbollah into the war? Under the previous strategic conception, Israel sought always to avoid a large-scale operation in Gaza in order not to encourage Hezbollah to open a second front in the north. The question is, is this strategy still realistic? This, it's the question, the threat of Hezbollah in the north unleashing its arsenal of missiles against Israel is not a question of if, but of question of when. Hezbollah in Lebanon has built up a terror arsenal for the sole purpose of attacking Israel at a time of its own choosing. So, a weak Israeli response would certainly encourage Hezbollah on our northern border to embark on a similar surprise attack on Israel like what had occurred from Gaza, including both missile attacks and infiltration, which is what happened in Gaza. To the Israeli communities along our northern border are in danger, but on a much greater scale than Hamas was capable of. Therefore, it may even be preferable for Israel to take the initiative to disarm Hezbollah now in the north, rather than wait for the Israel to be dragged into another war in the near future at a time that Hezbollah chooses. This is an extremely sensitive time. Nothing will be the same after last Saturday morning. And hopefully the people in our government, first of all, they should get together and make a unity government. This is not a time whatsoever for politics here in Israel. The days of politics are over. Now we must be united and come up with a strategy to defend ourselves on our southern border and on our northern border. I'm I'm not a uh, strategic thinker, but maybe we should take the initiative on the northern border before before the terrorists there take the initiative against us. It's a very, very difficult time. I've been living in Israel for more than 50 50 years. This is definitely the worst time since the Yom Kippur War 50 years ago. We can hope and pray that our leadership will get together, forget all their petty differences within the government, make a unity government so we can face our common enemy on our northern and on our southern borders. This is a historic moment. It is not a time for politics. It's a time for compromise, for strategic thinking. The people of Israel will be behind their government. It's interesting how before this happened, before this war started, there were members of the Army Reserve said they wouldn't serve as they were called up for political reasons. Now, 
the, their overwhelming, the overwhelming with, with their response to what's happening. The Israelis are coming in from all parts of the world who have been away from the country who want to come back and defend the country. It's a moment of unity. Hopefully our government will be strong enough to take the right steps. It is a historic moment. It must be handled on a historic level. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're back with Jay Shapiro. The first thing I want to mention on this section of the program is uh, something that has to do with the Biden administration. The Wall Street Journal reported on Sunday that Iranian security officials helped plan Hamas's attack after authorizing them at a meeting in Beirut last Monday. Now, the Wall Street Journal is pretty accurate in its reporting. So, as I said, they reported that the Iranians helped Hamas plan its attack on Israel earlier this week. The Biden administration admitted there was no doubt that Iran has been providing support for Hamas in the form of funding and arms. This also was reported in the Wall Street Journal. Now, what has happened is uh, that Biden, the Biden administration has enabled Iran to access billions of dollars that were frozen. The money is frozen in South Korea. It also distributed hundreds of millions of dollars in U.S. taxpayer funds to the Palestinians. This was also brought up by several American congressmen, Republicans, of course. Internal documents obtained by the Washington Free Bacon in August found that despite internal assessments that such funding could boost Hamas, the Biden administration allocated money anyway. The internal documents included the draft of the exemption request and internal emails about the need for the Treasury to grant it. In other words, the American administration gave money to the Iran Iranians who are supporting the terrorists in Gaza. The uh, the, the State Department, the State Department, the American State Department wrote in a draft sanctions exemptions requested. He said, we assess there is a high risk Hamas could potentially derive indirect unintentional benefit from U.S. assistance to Gaza. Notwithstanding this risk, state believes it is in our national security interest to provide assistance to the West Bank and Gaza to support the foreign policy objectives. <clears throat> in other words, 
The American administration admitted giving money to the terrorists. The Biden administration, therefore, must acknowledge its role in facilitating the worst terrorist attack in Israel since the Jewish state came into being. So, how can it make up this terrific strategy error? It, the United States must give full support to Israel to do everything necessary to ensure that Hamas and Islamic Jihad will never be able to attack Israel again from Gaza. And Biden must seek a deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia along the parameters of the Abraham Accords no Palestinian involvement or concessions to the corrupt Palestinian Authority or the terrorist organizations. A lot of mistakes have been made. The Biden administration made a lot of mistakes. Now, we in Israel, of course, are guilty of some mistakes. But the United States and the Biden administration allowed millions of dollars to be sent to Gaza to support Hamas. And now they have a duty to make up for it. The, uh, that has to be part of the end game. It's true that the United States is now moving an aircraft carrier to the Eastern Mediterranean. All this is good, but it doesn't cover the fact that the United States, under the Biden administration, made terrible mistakes in providing money to the ter terrorists in the Gaza Strip. This is recording to the Wall Street Journal. It's not something I'm making up. And uh, it, this money went to the terrorists through the Iranians, and it was supported by the Biden administration. There's no doubt Tehran has been providing support for Hamas in a form of funding and arms, according to the Wall Street Journal, a very reliable newspaper, very reliable newspaper. And these are the facts, unfortunately. So I just wanted to bring that up after I came across in the, this information in the newspapers. Again, I'm far from a military expert, but what's happened it seems to me is that Israel has had a policy by which it would constrain but not eliminate the military threat posed by what's going on in Gaza. The IDF, our army, has boasted of various victories in Gaza. Since the, we withdrew from Gaza in 2005, <clears throat> there have been a number of wars against Hamas and other terrorist groups in the Strip. But the focus by our army has been not on eliminate, eliminating the terrorism, but on containing it. Now, Arguments in favor of linking humanitarian assistance to Gaza to a demand for Hamas's military disarmament 
were dismissed in favor of sustaining calm through economic incentives. Now, what happened is that Israel made a huge mistake in imagining that a terrorist organization can change. And uh, <clears throat> Israel has in the past feared the human cost of eliminating Hamas, both in terms of Israeli soldiers and Palestinian civilians. Now, Israel in the past lacked international support to retake Gaza, and uh, the it, it really, we we're pressured to fear what other countries would say if we retook Gaza. The fact that our military actions are self-defensive or disproportionate didn't bother to the rest of the world. If Israel attacked Gaza, it would be convicted of war crimes. The uh, this, this equation seems so etched in stone that even Hamas's more emboldened moves in recent years in which it threatened rocket fire to protest Israeli actions against Palestinians anywhere, rather just in Gaza, didn't sway the Israeli military to re-examine its assumptions about the terrorist group. Israel, all these years, was simply interested in maintaining or containing the terrorist groups. So, uh, the... Uh, if you really look at it, what was happening was that Hamas was holding Israel hostage to perpetual threats of rocket fire and war, and Israel was afraid of war of the world opinion. And uh, Israel unilaterally withdrew in 2005. They withdrew its settlers. It took its army out of Gaza. But nobody could imagine what would happen. It what had imagined was that if they left this that the the Gaza area, which is along the coast, if it left it under Palestinian authority control, it would have peaceful relations with Israel, and uh, and uh, it would it would develop into a nice peaceful Palestinian state. No. However, that's when the Palestinian Authority was given control. But less than two years later, the Palestinian Authority was kicked out violently by Hamas. They kicked out Fatah, the Palestinian Authority, in a violent coup. So Israel tried to force Hamas's collapse through economic sanctions, but it failed. And Israel tried to halt the flow of arms into Gaza and its growing ties with Iran, but it all failed. Hamas launched an unprecedented assault on Israel this week, infiltrating its border communities, killing about a thousand people and taking at least a hundred hostages. We Hamas. I believe, and I, I believe what Netanyahu, our, our uh, prime minister, said, 
He said the Hamas made a, mis a mistake of historic proportion. Israel will exact the price that will be remembered by them and Israel's other enemies for decades to come. That's what our prime minister said. Just as the forces of civilization united, the, the forces of civilization must support Israel in defeating Hamas. So this speech seemed to indicate a shift in Israeli policy regarding Hamas. So the, the, we're facing a whole new world today. The moment the Hamas assault began last Sunday, everything was different. But does that new paradigm mean that the IDF should enter Gaza and remain there? If ever Israel was to do so, it would be the moment, particularly given that it is already expected to send ground troops. Ground troops are expected to go in. We have to fight the enemy. The question is, after hopefully we defeat the enemy, what next? From a military perspective, Israel has no choice but to reconquer Gaza. Now, the Israel's deterrence rests in part on the understanding of Israel's superiority in Israeli intelligence and creative thwarting of potential attacks and the strength of its preemptive and retaliatory strike. But, but this, these, this is a new ball game. The, the Hamas assault last Sunday, month Shabbos, increases the necessity of an Israeli victory that it is decisive, not just to prevent future attacks from the Palestinian terrorists, but also from Hezbollah in the north and other regional enemies. Now, the uh, uh, obviously, we're concerned about a larger conflict. And even the American government, the president, has hinted that the U.S. would come to Israel's military defense. So what, what the president said is pretty much like a warning to warn those who might now be thinking of attacking Israel. They could be tangled with the U.S. as well. Now, moving the... Israeli army back into Gaza, the, uh, then it, it, it seems it's going to be a necessity. The, uh, the Hamas can only be destroyed, according to our experts, from both the air and ground operations. It cannot be done only by the air force and by the artillery. Gaza would have to be reconquered by ground forces, according to the Israeli experts. Experts of Israeli experts believe that Israel must now destroy Hamas because the country can't afford to sustain an attack like to happen this week. This is not like a rocket threat where Israel goes and flattens out Hamas targets and leaves. 
because when they do this, it allows the terrorist groups to rearm and attack again. It's likely that even if Israel destroys Hamas's military capacity, the only way to ensure its continued disarmament is to place the IDF in Gaza permanently, which is thinkable, but the implications are unbelievable. And on top of this, there's a question of the hostages. Right now, they are being held there. There are those who argue the best way to prevent a second such assault is to rescue the hostages rather than negotiate their release. The question is, how is that done? It's interesting that should Israel want to reconquer Gaza, the considerations that constrained it in the past are no longer relevant. Israel's concern about a high casualty count from a ground operation that would wipe out Hamas, while important, no longer seems like an impossible price to pay. In the past, one could question the necessity of such a move and ponder the senselessness, but it will now be seen as a life-saving mission to rescue the hostages, a step in a war that was forced on Israel. The Israeli public is now likely to accept a higher casualty count than it would in the past, particularly if it means preventing a second such assault and saving what could be another thousand victims. It is also possible that the international community, which would have rejected Israel's actions in the past, would now support it. So the senseless uh, killing and uh, by what happened this week is, is it's, it's, it's a new ball game. Especially true if, it, it's, if, it, it's, if, uh, if we can push Iran out of the strip. The, um, the, uh, the, the Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee Chairman Yuri Edelstein opposed Israel's withdrawal from the strip in 2005, said that the question was premature, even though it was clear that Israel didn't plan to execute a military operation and then hand Gaza back to Hamas, as it's done in the past. But between this and full control, there's a huge distance. There's a possibility to conquer Gaza and probably divide it into several areas and give it under the control of local Palestinians. So the, the right now, the missions destroy all the military and other abilities there. And only if we meet this goal will it be possible to talk what the future of Gaza should be. See, this is a very complicated situation. The, uh, the, the, the bottom line is that Hamas must be destroyed. And then we'll figure out what to do next. I want to apologize to the listeners for the, the last 20 minutes of my program being slightly... Uh, uh, I've been thinking out loud on the... Uh, as I'm doing the program, I didn't write notes out in front of me. I'm just as thinking out loud about what the situation is, what some of the options are. They're, they're all very difficult. We are undoubtedly at a turning point in history. The question is, what will we do now 
to see to it that history turns in our direction. And it's uh, hopefully the people in our government will get together, rise above politics, and figure out what the best thing to do for the future of Israel and for the future of the of the Jewish people. We are at a historical moment. There's no two ways about it. And hopefully the right decisions will be made. Until next time, Jay Shapiro, uh, my prayers are with our people, with our army, and I assume that your prayers are also. Let's hope for the best.